strange things, let me tell you. Uh, is that, they have this thing called a jug-handled left turn. Has anybody heard about this? Jug, okay, we got one. Uh, jug-handled left turn. The, the way it works is in order to turn left, you've got to go right first, okay? And I, couldn't ra- I could not wrap my mind around this for the longest time until you realize how much traffic there actually is on the roads out there. So in order to go left, you got to go right first. It's not very intuitive, okay? So they have, they have warning signs, and they'll tell you, uh, you know, turn coming ahead, and there's, there's, there's these bright colored signs to tell you what to do. But the thing is, if you're not from the area, you've never done this before, you really would have no way of, of knowing, or if you happen to miss the warning sign, right? So while I was there, there was an accident that happened on Route 1, which is this major thoroughfare that kind of goes through a good chunk of New Jersey, and somebody who was unfamiliar with the area, unfamiliar with this way of, of driving, tried to just pull up and make a normal left turn. As they did this, they were hit by oncoming traffic and killed. When we ignore warning signs, we do so at our own peril. The nation of Israel had been given warning after warning after warning by all of these prophets, guys like Isaiah and Amos and Hezekiah. They'd been warned again and again and again about their sin, and they'd been calling them to repentance, and yet all of these cries fell on deaf ears. Israel continued in their sin. They continued to persist, and ultimately what happened was God punished them at the hands of the Assyrian Empire, this this major, massive world superpower that came in and hauled the people off into exile. That's what we're talking about today, the exile of the northern kingdom. So our text for this morning is going to come from 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 5 through 18. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there now with me. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. And if you have your copy of the story, it's on page 219. 219. And I'll ask you to rise for the reading of God's Word today. 2 Kings 17, beginning at verse 5. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah, in Gozan, on the Haber River, and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right, From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. In every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey, and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors, who did not trust in the Lord their God. 
They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is heavy stuff. We see in Israel, we see glimpses and glimmers of ourselves. We see our failure to uphold your law, to do as you call us to do. I pray this morning, Father, that you would be at work in each of our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would convict us through your word and return us to you again and again and again. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So Israel's main problem, if we had to boil it down to just one word, would clearly be idolatry. Idolatry, right? They fell into this practice where they, they gave in to the pressure from the nations surrounding them, and, and they worshiped the gods of the lands, Baal and, and Chemosh and Molech and Astarte and El and Yom. But, but idol worship wasn't something just unique to Israel. It's common, actually, to the whole human experience. The great reformer John Calvin said this, he said, every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. So what is an idol? Well, in the Old Testament, in this particular context, what they're usually referring to as as an idol is something made of wood or stone or or clay or, or bronze, some sort of physical representation of a deity. And certainly that's the case in our day and age as well. You can walk up to a mosque or a a Hindu temple and, and you will literally find these things. But the definition of an idol actually goes much deeper than this. Here's how our catechism defines an idol or a god. It says, a god is that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. Is that kind of clear what we're talking about with gods now? That that expands the definition to beyond wood and stone and and iron and bronze. That takes it out of that realm, and, and it clarifies that an idol is actually a heart issue. So these idols that we we speak of, it's, it's easy to say, well, I'm off the hook. I, I don't bow down at a a statue made of bronze, but the idols that God speaks about exist in the human heart. They're not simply external. It's a heart issue. And that's ultimately what happened to the Israelites. Their hearts were led astray, and they came to find refuge in these gods to trust and believe in them with their whole heart, right? But if this 16th century definition 
of an idol isn't quite doing it for you. I've got another one here. I think just to put this in modern day terms, we could say it like this. An idol is whatever you love most of all. An idol is whatever you love most of all. If that thing, that person, place, or thing were taken away, you wouldn't be okay anymore. And what is that thing for you? What, what, what is that person, place, or thing? Now, maybe you knew all of this. We've talked about idols before. This isn't the first time. But here's something else. Israel's idolatry was syncretistic. It was syncretistic. And I use that word to remind you that I went to seminary. No. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. By contract, I'm obligated to, to bring it up at least twice a year. So, no, the word syncretism, it, what, it, what it really means is you can see the definition here incorporation into religious faith and practice of elements from other religions. So, Israel, what they're doing is they're not totally abandoning Yahweh. What they're doing is saying, all right, Sunday morning, we're going to worship at the church of Yahweh, but then come Monday, we're going to mix in a little bit of Chemosh on Tuesday, let's go with Molech, and then Wednesday, a little bit of Baal worship, right? In other words, they want their little side hustle gods too, yeah? You all know what a side hustle is, right? We've all got our, our, our main jobs, our primary vocations, but then in addition to that, you sell shoes on the side or, or you do some sewing or, or you, you, you write or you do something like this, right? Wonderful way to, to help supplement your income. Spiritually speaking, though, deadly, utterly deadly. God never leaves the option of having a, a side hustle God open to us. I mean, the first commandment makes this crystal clear. Exodus 20 verse 3 says, you shall have how many other gods before me? None. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with, with all your might. What percentage? 65% of your heart? 75? No. With all of who you are, right? Any questions? Like, there's not much wiggle room here for side hustle. God's, is there? Now, why is that? Like, what is it about God that He doesn't want us to worship anyone else? Is it kind of like he's this, this third-grade kid on the playground who, who gets jealous when their best friend is playing on the slide with someone else? And is God just, just petty and, and, and jealous and kind of this glory hog who needs all of the attention and, and all of our affections? Well, no, it, it's not that. God is complete in and of Himself. He doesn't need anything from us at all. But the thing is, he knows that divided affections lead to a divided heart and broken relationships. Divided affections lead to a divided heart and broken relationships. There's this term out there in the world today. It's probably been in existence for quite a while, but it's becoming kind of a hot-button thing. It's called polyamory, okay? Also known as, I wrote this down, Non consensual non-monogamy. And it occurs not just in dating relationships, but in marriage relationships, where 
people agree and mutually agree to have more than one romantic partner in the relationship, right? So there's this word, maybe you've heard it, called thruple. Replaces couple from two to, to three. There's actually a whole reality show that's going to be coming out about it. The interesting thing about this trend is that it's not just for young people. Actually, people of, of older generations are getting on board with this thing too. Polyamory. Now, the problem with this, if it's not abundantly clear, is that all we have to do is, is look back to the patriarchs, right? Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, to see that this kind of arrangement never ends well, does it? I mean, think Sarah and Hagar or Rebecca and Leah. It always ends up in jealousy, discord, competition, distrust, or, or division of some kind. And for really good reason. You can't trust someone and be unfaithful to them simultaneously. You can't add a third or fourth person to the mix without rejecting the second person. It doesn't work in relationships romantically, and it certainly doesn't work in our spiritual relationship with God. Here's a quote that I found helpful, and I think you will too. It's from a pastor named Dale Ralph Davis. He says, we must never forget that at its root, Israel's love affair with the nations is a rejection of grace. Israel's love affair with the nations is a rejection of grace. You see, the, w the way that all other gods work is they demand sacrifice, they demand satisfaction, and then if you appease them, if you, if you, if you let enough blood, if you do enough, if you earn enough, maybe you can hope that they will look favorably upon you, right? Starts with us, works toward God, and yet Yahweh works differently, doesn't he? he? He reverses the whole trend. He comes to Israel, not because they are bigger or stronger than any of the other nations around them, but, but simply because God is love. He loved them and, and chose them special to be his people. So to, to go after these other false gods is really a rejection of grace, too. Israel wanted her little side hustle gods, and so do we. Our polytheistic hearts won't settle for spiritual monogamy. Like the Israelites, we still want to appear respectable and to keep up all the auspices of being properly devoted to, to Yahweh. But secretly, we bring other gods into the pantheon of our hearts, and we erect high place after high place. We want to be seen as faithful husbands, but secretly, we pursue other romantic exploits, whether virtually or in person on the side. We want to be seen as faithful church givers, but secretly our financial giving to the work of the Lord is negligible. It never actually hurts our wallet. We want to prioritize faith in the lives of our kids, but we still sign them up for every activity under the sun, and then we're shocked when they walk away from the faith. We spend thousands of hours in the bleachers, but minutes in the pews. We want to be seen as loving our neighbors. In principle, this sounds great, right? Who doesn't want to love their neighbor? But are we willing to carve out, even say just an hour out of the month, to invite that out-of-work single mom down the street who's just striving to make ends meet over for supper? And maybe even sacrifice family or sports time to do it. Now, here's the problem with all of these side hustle gods, right? There's kind of like three different, different problems with them. Where do they lead? 
Where, where do these, these false gods, this worship of false gods, where does that lead the Israelites? Listen again to verse 15. It says, they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. So this is, this is point number one. First, it turned the Israelites into the very things they worshipped. You notice the, the word play here in, in verse 15. They followed worthless idols and then they themselves became what? Worthless. They became what they worshipped. This is the way that, that gods ultimately work. Sometimes we think about, well, we fashion gods in our image, and that's certainly true, but, but also the more you worship them, the more that those gods begin to form and to mold and to shape you into their image too. We become inseparable from them. We don't know who we are without them. They start to take up more and more of our own identity. The more time you spend on wealth management, the more you see everything in terms of dollar signs and cents. The more you worship earthly security, the more you tend to make all of your life decisions based solely on risk analysis. The more you worship the gods of hunting and fishing and vacationing and, and living the good life, the more time and money you'll sacrifice to appease them. Gods always require sacrifice. I don't know if you noticed this, but with the Israelites, it was actually their own sons and daughters. It was child sacrifice. See, what happens here, right, is me and my idol merge into this undifferentiated mass. You can't even tell where I end and the idol begins. That's the first problem with, with idols is they, we become what we worship. Secondly, idols lead us to neglect God's word. They lead us to neglect God's word. 2 Kings 17.12 says, And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. The Lord had said to them. The Lord is always saying things to Israel. He's always speaking to them. He's always giving them His Word, right? Telling them, this, this is how you, you should live. This is the good way to live. This is the covenant I am creating for you. This is within these bounds is good, and outside of that is, is only going to cause harm and hurt to you. So, do you remember... Uh, Mount Sinai, think back to that for a minute, right? Mount Sinai, there's the thunder, and there's the lightning, and there's the smoke, and Charlton Heston is up there somewhere too, I think, if I'm remembering this correctly. And what does God do? He gives Moses what? Ten commandments. Writes it down on these, these ten tablets, or these, these, these two stone tablets. God made a covenant with them and told them how to live, what to do, what not to do, and what did they do they disobeyed. They moved away from the authority of God's Word and became their own authority instead. You know, one way you can know if you have an idol in your life is if it's teaching you something contrary to God's Word. God's Word is always the final authoritative guide for faith and practice, regardless of what we think or see or feel, as much as those things may matter. Ultimately, though, and this is the, the third and final thing, idols lead to death. Idols lead to death. They lead us off into exile, putting a hook in our nose and shackles on our hearts. They drive a wedge between us and God, the God who loved us so much 
that He rescued us from Egypt and, and called us His own. You see, the seductive side hustle gods, which look so attractive at the time, they lead us down this road and end in death. Now think back with me for a second, way back to the Garden of Eden. What was God's warning to Adam and Eve? He said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And very on, God's making it clear that the wages of sin is death. And then in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul, he lays out the full implications of this. Romans 5.12, he says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, he's talking about Adam here, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sin. You see what happened when Adam and Eve ate that fruit and broke the world is we did too. We are guilty along with them. It's easy to think, had I been there, I would have made a different choice, but God's Word teaches us otherwise. The wages of sin is death, and not just physical death, but eternal death, eternal separation from God, hell. And another word for that kind of eternal separation is exile. And it's precisely how God punished the Israelites, sending them off to exile in Assyria. 2 Kings 17, 18 says, so the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. Did your heart just, just break a little bit? God removed them from His presence. To be removed from the presence of God was their punishment. And eventually, not even Judah was left. Next week, you'll read about how they were conquered and exiled by another nation. So the same thing happens to Judah. The southern kingdom is just that Babylon is the nation that's going to haul them off into exile. And man, this is us. This is Israel, this is Judah, this is us at the bottom of the barrel. Unable to save ourselves, utterly hopeless, powerless to unexile ourselves, to bring ourselves even one step closer to God on our own. But I know you're waiting for that word. Here's the wonderful truth. God loved Israel, and He loves us too much to leave us there. One of the things about the prophets, guys like Isaiah and, and Hosea and Amos, is that even in the midst of their harshest words, there's always a promise to temper that. A promise that the exile was not going to last forever and that a remnant would return to the promised land. Here's just one example of this. Sometimes you got to do a little bit of digging to find it, but, but here it is, Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 9. This is what the Lord says, in the time of my favor, I will answer you, and in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. And man, God says those same words to us here this morning too. You in darkness, come out. Be free. John 3.16, you know this verse. We'll put it on the screen here. 
say it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, Jesus experienced exile so that we wouldn't have to. Remember on the cross as He's hanging there between heaven and earth, He experiences the ultimate separation between Him and His heavenly Father when He cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? See, He went into exile in order to bring us back home, to bring us back to God. Just like Hosea pursued unfaithful Gomer, God pursued His unfaithful bride all the way to the cross and paid for her sins with His holy and precious blood. None of our little side hustle gods ever sacrificed as much. The good news for you and me this morning is this, whatever idol you find yourself being drawn back toward, whatever bad habit you can't seem to kick, whatever sins and failures may checker your past or are making an absolute train wreck of your life right now, God's call is the same. Repent, return to me, and I will again have compassion. I love you. I forgive you 70 times 7 and beyond, and I am the only God you will ever need. Let's pray.